Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Well, last Lent, we um, decided that this year we wanted to spend some time together pondering the seven deadly sins. But uh, Lent is more than seven weeks, so we knew we would have to get a running start. So that's what we're doing this, this Sunday. <clears throat> you know, over the years, the seven deadly sins have, have uh, been engaged in lots of different ways. They've evoked morbid fascination. In other uh, venues, they've evoked a kind of rigid self-introspection that hasn't been very healthy. But now it seems like they're mostly a, a relic of an older generation. Usually they're even lampooned. In 1987, there was a, a Harper's um, cover story, and it had seven Madison Avenue um, uh, advertising agencies put together seven different pictures of trying to sell a particular sin. I'm sure it was really intriguing. But the reality is that across most of Christian history, these seven vices or seven sins have been understood to be the kinds of practices and broken places in our heart that decay our love for God, that de degrade our humanity, that ultimately lead us to all kinds of ruin. So what I'd like to do today is just give a, a short introduction to these seven vices or seven deadly sins and then We'll dive into them a little more next week. That's an interesting way to put it, I guess. Maybe not actually dive into the sins, but talking about them. This is a very, very ancient way of understanding the spiritual soul, human practice, the world. It emerged from the Desert Fathers. In fact, Evagrius Ponticus in the 4th century was the first one that we know of who put together these kinds of vices. At the time, it was actually eight. It was birthed in the wisdom tradition. It was birthed out of an actual practice of faith. And Evagrius wasn't even trying at the time to set apart some kind of grid for all of humanity, but he had recognized that there were eight evil thoughts that seemed to constantly plague the desert hermit. I do love the fact that Evagrius, if we remember, was born in Turkey, lived some in Jerusalem, and spent most of his life in Egypt. And I think it's really important for us to remember how the roots of our faith go to places that aren't America. They're not even Europe. They go here to the, to the Middle East. In the sixth century, Gregory the Great, he tweaked the list to seven. And then in the 13th century, Aquinas put his final touches on the list as we have it now, and it's pretty similar to what Evagrius uh, initially had. It's vainglory with its cousin pride being understood by many to be the root of all the other vices. Then envy, sloth, avarice, wrath, lust, and gluttony. Now, why these particular seven? Nowhere in scripture do we have these particular seven put together and does it say these are the seven capital vices? There are some places like Proverbs uh, chapter 6, Galatians 
chapter 5, where there's some other kinds of lists with a lot of similarities. However, this particular list is unashamedly evolving out of a wisdom tradition. It's a way that Christians over centuries have learned to practice their faith across time. It's grounded in the presumption that there are people of faith, of rich life with God, who have gained practical wisdom in how to nurture the life of Christ into our human experience, into our soul. This wisdom acknowledges that while each of us are marvelously unique, we're probably not nearly so unique as we think. There are particular temptations, certain patterns of character that serve as the fountain for all kinds of human misery and ruin. There are particular postures of living in the world, ways of acting, ways of being present to God and to ourselves and to one another that are predictably common and when twisted in the wrong direction are powerfully destructive. So it's important to say, though, that we're not saying that these seven are the most egregious things we can do. You notice murder isn't on the list. It's rather, as the old Christians would say, these are the capital vices. And what they meant by that was that these were the fountainhead or the spring from which all kinds of other vices and destructive behavior would come forth. In fact, in centuries past, going back to like the 8th and 9th century, these were actually used in pastoral confessional manuals where they would talk about vices and they would describe what the vice is and they would talk about different ways that it shows up. And then they would list 15 or 20 or 25 other kinds of harmful behaviors this could lead to. And it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of thing where you're supposed to sit there and you know, rip yourself apart, trying to introspect every little detail to see where you're... It was more a, a way of sort of bringing to light these things that somehow go unnamed oftentimes. Well, an obvious thing we should probably ask is, uh, why even talk about this? And why particularly talk about sin? It's not a word that um, many of us care to think much about, and that's probably a good thing. And the whole idea can seem ridiculously outdated in our modern world. And the truth is that religion and culture have twisted the idea of sin. They've encouraged a kind of groveling posture where we pick ourselves apart with endless self-criticism and then flagellate ourselves for how very awful we are. And the reality is that that is a very destructive way to, to respond to the gospel, to respond to God. And if that's sort of the way that you have always learned to hear the concept of sin, then um, it's really important for you to hear these words. The human story, you as a beloved human being in God's world, beloved by God, the human story does not begin with sin and correction. It begins with goodness and blessing. We are created by God, boundlessly loved by God, welcomed by God, delighted in by God. This is the most fundamental fact about you. Right now, with whatever mess you might bring this morning, with whatever place, wherever your story has been, you are beautifully, profoundly, deeply, endlessly loved by God. 
And sin is one way to talk about the many ways that we spurn this love. The ways that we rebel and twist and run away from such overwhelming goodness. It simply won't do to act as if no spurning or rebelling or twisting or running away happens, because it does. And sin is the name for that. We humans seem intent on giving our love and our hope to all kinds of things other than God. And this is the great travesty, that we rebel against the very one who would love us and welcome us and make us whole. This is why we need Jesus' prayer from the cross every single day. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Sin is what happens when we step out of the light of true love. When we step out of the light of true humanity. When we walk into the murkiness of what James calls the shifting shadows. It's when we twist true desires into destructive and dishonest desires. This is the way James talked about it. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear friends. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. His he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of everything that he created. So according to James, desire is not evil itself, but desires are often twisted by evil into a gnarled version of itself. This is probably why pride has often been understood as one kind of the original sin. It's pushing away the God who is above us, the God who is over us, the love that is larger than us. And it's why the virtues are often understood at their most basic as a pursuit of and surrendering our life to and being overwhelmed by the one truest thing in the world, the love of God. But when we resist God, now we have to pause here. When we say resisting God, it doesn't mean to be resisting our self-assured pronouncements about God or our flawed visions of God. Maybe some who are resisting these things will find in the end that they aren't actually resisting God at all. They're resisting the lie. But whenever we do resist God, which is resisting love, and whenever we give ourselves over to these gnarled desires, death and ruin are the result. When sin is full grown, James says, it gives birth to death. God and love lead to life, and sin and rebellion lead to death. 
Augustine taught us that sin is really just a perversion of something good. It's a good desire gone rogue. It's detached from the reality of things. It's detached from our true humanity. It's detached from God. It's crucial to know the truth about ourselves. We are a, a people that are really good at lying to ourselves. <laughs> we're really good at missing what's right in front of us. We're really good at missing the harm we're doing to ourselves and to others. And these pernicious seven, these seven vices or, or ways of naming these places where we've given ourselves over to things that aren't true. So whenever we ponder these seven deadly sins, it's not because we want to wallow in them. It's not because we want to fixate on them. It's because we want to be cured of them. We want to be liberated. We want to be free to love God with our heart and our mind and our soul and our body. We want to be truly, gloriously human, remade in the true human, Christ. We want what the old Christians called a cure for the soul. Augustine said in a prayer directed to God, Without you, what am I to myself but a guide to my own self-destruction? Most of our foremothers and forefathers gave much more attention, and I think this is true for us as well, rightfully so, to virtues, to wisdom, justice, temperance, courage, faith, hope, love. The vices are not the point. They're just a twisting of the virtues. They're twisting of the good. But sometimes we need to name what is twisted. We need to call it out. We need to say what is false so that we can clearly see what is true. Sometimes we need to name something and allow the light to break in so that we can actually walk out of the fog. In the gospel reading today, we heard Jesus instructing us to both teach and obey God's commandments. This is the way of life. It's the way of truth. It's the way home. And this is why, as we're talking through these over the coming weeks, we'll often speak of them as vices rather than sins, because the emphasis in this wisdom tradition has not been on reminding us how bad we are, but rather on helping us identify our destructive patterns, those dehumanizing ways that we see the world and operate in the world. And to be liberated is to know that by God's mercy, by God's grace, we can slowly and steadily learn to do different. In fact, uh, Aquinas sometimes believed that some of the things on this list were maybe even not best understood first as a sin with all the baggage that carries. And he particularly pointed out lust and gluttony. He thought of them in terms of human weakness and impulses that left unchecked would lead us to sin. It's ways of pointing out places in our character and patterns of our life that we have just sort of taken on as just the way we are. And the scripture and those who've gone before us says it actually doesn't have to be the way you are. One of the things I like about spending some time pondering these things is because it normalizes our experience. There can be an immense amount of shame around particular vices in our life. 
But when you realize how old this tradition is, it really normalizes things. <laughs> if we're human, we're going to struggle with at least some of this. And if you're really human, you might struggle with all of it. <laughs> These are immensely ordinary. This is what humans, going all the way back to as far as we can remember our story, we've struggled with these things. I mean, even the ascetic monks in the desert struggle with this stuff. It gives us a name for what we struggle with. It allows us to, to say this is what it is, and this is the character traits. It's, I know a number of us have, have taken some of the courses we've done on the Enneagram, and it's really interesting how the seven deadly sins in a little different way are really tied into the Enneagram. It's a way of, you know, it's not magic, and if you don't even like these grids, it's totally fine. You can just chunk them. But for those of us who find it helpful, it, it is a way of saying, oh, that's what that is. Oh, this is really common. Oh, I'm not starting from scratch when I'm thinking about how to grapple with this part of my humanity. It puts us in an ancient line of faithful pilgrims who stepped into life with God and put their heart and their love and their effort into pursuing love of God and wholeness. So over the coming weeks, um, with each of these seven vices, we'll receive help in identifying how it shows up for us. Some practical suggestions for how we might resist it and turn away from the shifting shadows into the light. Because this is, this is what the whole thing's about. It's about shedding the false selves. It's about saying yes to the truth of our life in God. It's about saying yes to the remaking power of love through Jesus Christ. And that sounds like a good thing to me. Would you pray with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.